We're in James chapter one again today. Um, I just mentioned if you pick up a Go Deep Sheet or you'd like to, Go Deep Sheets help us uh, go through the text. So if you want one, you can take it home and help you think about what you heard and what the scripture says and study it a little deeper and figure out ways to apply it. For There were some, whatever color that is, pink or orange or something, sheets in the printer when I printed, so I didn't want you not to think those were Go Deep Sheets, so some of them out there are this color. I'm going to read for us chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, James 1. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. So put away all filth and evil excess and humbly welcome the message implanted within you which is able to save your souls. That's the New English translation, or the Net Bible, which, by the way, is a, a very good translation. Recommend it. I was afraid of my dad when I was growing up. Not just afraid of the consequences of doing something wrong, which is not a bad thing, but afraid of him, which is a bad thing. I was afraid of his displeasure, of his anger. And I'm not saying that he expressed anger all the time by any means. But I knew it was there all the time, below the surface, and I knew that it could come out at any time. Because of that, I became guarded with my parents and, and with others, even secretive. I started bending the truth when telling it straight would cause conflict. Avoided confrontation, not just with my dad, but with other people, even when confrontation was appropriate, maybe even necessary. And there were other bad things that entered my life through his anger, but that's the way it is with anger. It's like a software download that you didn't want that comes with your new computer or whatever you bought. But that's only part of the problem because piggybacking on the software is a cluster of malwares that cause all kinds of other problems. Piggybacking on anger, all kinds of other things that cause problems. When I was young and for decades after that, I didn't think through any of this. I wasn't capable of it. It takes a degree of maturity and perspective just to realize that there's an issue. And while my dad was responsible for his anger, when I grew up, I became accountable for how I responded to it. And just so you know, by the grace of God, my dad's and my relationship didn't end like this. In fact, we had quite a few years. He, he changed, and I came to respect him and not fear him, and I think he came to respect me too. In the course of my pastoral duties, I have seen again and again the truth that James writes in verse 20. Human anger does not accomplish or produce God's righteousness. God is determined to produce his righteousness in us as individuals, in us as a church, in our community, and in our world. He will do this. But human anger, even anger over unrighteousness, is not what produces God's righteousness, not in us nor in our circumstances. But anger does produce lots of other things. Broken people, broken homes, 
feeble churches, aversion to God, deep resentment, rejection of self, just to name a few. Anger produces anger like a flame produces fire. And sometimes that fire burns outward, sometimes it burns inward, but it will keep on burning and reduce our lives to rubble unless someone puts it out. Today I'm asking you to put it out. I know people have been deluded into thinking they ought to be angry, that they need to be angry. Our society has been deceived into thinking of anger as a virtue, even as a moral imperative. People today can't imagine how someone can be earnest without being angry, which is in part why our government and society are so divided and adversarial. In recent years, anger's almost become a prerequisite for holding office. A Republican who isn't angry at those dirty, no-good Democrats, a liberal who isn't outraged by those greedy, heartless conservatives, has no real hope of even winning a primary. Our former president was routinely and roundly criticized by people in his own party for not being angry enough. Articles were written on the subject, News reporters talked about it. What's the matter with him, people ask. Doesn't he care as if anger is the only emotion that counts as caring? And sure enough, following lots of criticism, the usually poised and deliberate president included a swear word in his speech to prove to voters he was angry too. It's insane. Human anger does not, it never has, and it never will accomplish God's righteousness. Now, right now, you may be thinking, but I have a reason to be angry. Who doesn't? Of course you do. One of the worst things about anger is that self-justification piggybacks on it into our lives. While it lasts, anger, from the angry person's perspective, <clears throat> is always justified. Always. The angry person knows that his or her anger is righteous. As long as your mind is telling you that your anger is justified, you will never get rid of it. It'll just burrow its way deeper and deeper into your soul. We must deal with anger, by which I mean we must do what St. Paul commanded Christ followers to do, but now rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And by the way, that is not an isolated verse. We're told the same thing over and over again. Jesus' people are not to be identified by their anger, but by their love. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, wrote, he's writing and imagining that the pagans of his day were saying about Christians, look how they love one another. 
He says, since non-Christians often were engaged in hating one another and how they're ready to die for each other because non-Christians are readier to kill each other. We will have more impact on our families and communities and nations if people say, look how they love one another rather than look how they smolder. Rid yourself of anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. After I started working on this sermon, as if to drive the seriousness of this matter home to me, I met a man, never knew him until this week, who told me a story about someone from Lockwood. Suppose it's someone I know, but he wouldn't tell me his name. He told me about how this man's angers brought harm to others and reproach on Lockwood, and far more seriously, on the name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we must rid ourselves of anger, rage, and malice. We must. Human anger will never produce God's righteousness, but it will set production records for other things, like shame and regret and fear and stunted lives. Rid yourselves of anger. Now remember the context for this verse. James has been talking about trials and the temptations they pose. In verse 5, he talked about the person who finds himself in a tough situation and has no idea what to do. In verse 9, he talks to the guy who doesn't have enough money to make ends meet. It's with that as background that he tells us to be slow to anger. See, when everything is wonderful, people are slow to anger. It's when your boss is on your case and the car needs repairs and you don't have money, or your spouse wants something that conflicts with your expectations. In other words, it's when you're doing real life that the temptation to anger occurs. These things don't bring on anger. I got angry because of this. No, you didn't. They don't bring on anger, they bring it out. It's already there. They're not the cause of anger, they're the setting for it. Just as a courtroom is the setting for a trial, but not the cause of the trial. Jesus told people, and I'm sure James was listening. By the way, James echoes Jesus over and over and over and over in this letter. It's remarkable how many times you hear Jesus' thoughts and words coming out of James's mouth or through his pen. Jesus told people that it wasn't what happens outside a person, but what happens inside that matters. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. And that's why James goes on to say, therefore, since human anger does not produce God's righteousness, and God is intent on producing his righteousness, since human anger won't do that, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. James thinks of moral filth, the desires, attitudes, and commitments that are repulsive to God, moral filth, and prevalent 
evil, societal evil. Picture a river filled with sewage that's overflowed its banks and flowed into your neighborhood, which sounds a little, doesn't it, like the internet. Picture it as attaching to us. And James wants us to tear it off like soiled clothes. In fact, the word he uses here is precisely the word that means to take off one's clothes. Take it off, he says. See, here's what James knows. Anger collects around the moral dirt in our lives. The way metal shavings collect on a magnet. You and I will never get a handle on anger as long as we're letting other things, prejudice, lust, deceit, malice, greed, and worst of all, pride, as long as we're letting those things just go on inside of us. It's like leaving a bowl of rotten apples on the kitchen counter and trying to deal with the fruit flies one at a time, trying to deal with anger while you're letting those other things go on. Get rid of the rotten stuff. That's James's counsel to us. Get rid of it. The NIV translates verse 21 this way. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. The NIV places the modifier humbly with the phrase that follows. Humbly accepting the word. And that makes sense. It's perfectly legitimate in Greek. But it could also go with what precedes humbly getting rid of all moral filth. See, a more literal translation might go like this. Therefore, remember, since human anger does not produce God's righteousness, taking off, it's a present participle, keep taking this stuff off, taking off all the dirt and overflow of evil in meekness. That's the word. In meekness, receive the implanted word. In other words, it will take meekness to get rid of the sin that's collected in our lives. And you can see why that is. It takes meekness even to admit that there's dirt in us. We have to admit it to ourselves, to God, and quite possibly to someone else. That takes meekness. Now, meekness is not weakness. It is strength that doesn't have to assert itself. Meekness is strength that doesn't assert itself. Meekness doesn't say, how dare you say that to me? Who do you think you are? That's not the way meekness is. In Galatians chapter 6, it's meekness that enables us to correct someone else without arrogance or anger. To be able to say, hey, this is wrong. Without thinking we're better than them. Here, it's meekness that enables us to receive correction without arrogance or defensiveness or becoming resentful. There is no better indicator of where your spiritual life is than how you receive correction and how you give it. Meekness is needed both for taking off the dirt and for receiving the word of God. And James knows we need to do both. If we try to do the first, we try to remove the dirt, make a new start, be a better person, without doing the second, 
receiving the word of God, changes won't last. Moral dirt will keep attracting anger, but God's word repels it. To humbly accept the word or to receive it in meekness is to receive it as a word for you, with authority over you. You know, as a pastor of almost 40 years now, I've realized when it comes to hearing the word of God, some folks have a rake and some have a shovel. The rake people are always pulling the word in, taking it to themselves. How does this apply to me? The shovel people are always pushing it off to someone else. Oh, I wish my daughter could have heard that sermon. Or John probably let that go right over his head, didn't even notice. It was all about him. You can guess which ones receive the word humbly or with meekness. We Christians, you know what? We love to discuss God's word, and that's a good thing. We parse the word. We read commentaries about it. We pay teachers to tell us what it, it says. We form study groups around it, write books about it, read books about it, and all that's good. We should probably do more than we do. But it doesn't go far enough unless it leads us to humbly accept the word and do it. A person who receives the word in meekness receives it as a word for him or her, goes on to do what it says. So James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. That's a theme in James, by the way. He's so worried we're going to deceive ourselves because it's so easy for us to do. Do, he says, do what it says. Doing the word repels evil. Doing the word changes us in a way that protects us from anger. Success in the kingdom of God depends upon doing God's word. Jesus is clear about that. The best teachers of the word are not necessarily the best communicators or the best scholars. They don't need to be experts in Hebrew or Greek. They may not be and probably aren't the most eloquent or exciting speakers, but the best teachers of the word always do what it says. They've lived it. Now, how do we live this word that God is speaking to us today? How do you and I take this personally? Let's get out our rakes. Let's pull it to us. Let me give you some suggestions. First, make no excuses. Don't say, well, I have a right to be angry. You would think that, whether it's true or not, because self Justification is a byproduct of anger. Everybody who's angry thinks that. Don't make excuses. Don't tell yourself, well, my anger isn't so bad, or his anger is way worse than mine. No excuses. Second, in meekness, seek the forgiveness of those your anger has harmed. Now, if you think, well, it's not like I hit him or anything, you're still not getting it. You don't need to hit someone or call them names to hurt them by anger. Anger by itself hurts, it isolates, it deprecates others. You don't even need to say a word. Along with seeking forgiveness. And by the way, 
in the history of the church, every great movement of God has begun with people seeking forgiveness. Along with seeking forgiveness, get rid of the dirt, the rotten apples, the desires, attitudes, and commitments that repulse God but attract anger. We need to be honest about this. It'll take meekness. We need to ask God for help, and we may need to ask another Christian to help us too, to pray for us, to keep us honest. That's meekness in action. Then receive the word God speaks to us as having authority over us. In other words, do what it says. Well, what if I'm not sure that it's really God? God's word to me? What, what if I just think it's God speaking to me? How do I know? This sermon, for example, you might be sitting there and thinking, boy, that's hidden. Ooh, I don't like that. And, but maybe that's not God speaking to me. Maybe that's just Shane's word. Masquerading is God's word. Well, let me give you a suggestion. When you don't know, should I do this? Should I not do this? Is this God's will for me? Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. We all get into that place sometimes, right? If it's a good thing to do, and you're able to do it, just do it. I don't know if it's God's word to me. Just do it if it's a good thing to do. If it will help someone else and you're able, do it. If it will honor God, just do it. It's not our job to avoid doing everything we absolutely don't have to do. That's why James will say in chapter 4, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do, not just the good that comes to him through the word of God, knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. You know it's a good thing, do it. Finally and very practically, commit verse 19 to memory. This is one of our memory verses in our, our spiritual formation time when we were memorizing scripture. Memorizing it will help you do it. And then practice it. Be quick to listen. By the way, when you go out on those cafe tables, I made up a bunch of little bookmarks with James 1.19 on it. So pick one up and use it until you get this memorized and keep it where you can see it so it will remind you to do it. And then practice it. Be quick to listen. So when someone says something that seems wrong to you, hear them out before you speak, even when what they say seems way out of line to you. I'm going to give you a very current example. Last week, Governor Cuomo of New York signed into law a late-term abortion bill that seems barbaric to me. It would potentially allow a viable baby to be killed moments before birth. Moments. It makes me angry that he and other elected officials applauded it as if it were some cause of celebration, lit up a landmark building all in pink to say, yay, we did it. In my righteous anger, of course it's righteous, I thought about writing a column, blasting the legislators. Oh, I could compare them to Nazis. I could relegate their kind to hell. That would make things better, wouldn't it? That'll probably turn the tide. The whole nation will read Shane Looper, and then they'll all change. 
or I can listen before I speak or write. I can actually do what God is telling me to do through his servant James. Well, we don't have to do that when it's something like this. Who said? Where on earth did you get that idea? I can try to understand why legislators thought this bill was necessary. Now, I have a theory about that. Maybe it's correct, but I haven't listened. If I listen in order to understand and not just to argue, if I wait to speak until I've listened, I may not get angry at all. But if I do, it's far more likely that my anger will be an expression of God's anger, which can make things right rather than just make me feel superior. All right, I'm going to give you a couple minutes to listen to the Lord right now. And then we're going to pray and sing. Thank you for giving us your word and your great mercy. Now help us to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.